Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Good to see everybody. Welcome to Generations today. Good to see you. Good to see all of you at home who are joining us by live stream. Thank you so much for joining us and inviting us into your homes wherever you are. I'm glad you're here today. This summer, we're looking at some stories of ordinary people who step out in faith and do extraordinary things, heroic things. And, uh, you know, the Bible's full of famous kings and queens and war heroes. But today's story is a little different. I'm very excited about it. It's one of my favorite characters, and it's one that not everybody has heard of. It's a different kind of hero. It's a woman who held no political title. She did no mighty miracles, but one day she stood up between two incredibly powerful men who were about to pretty much fight to the death, and she probably, it's not an exaggeration to say that she single-handedly altered the course of history for the the nation of Israel, and her name is Abigail. How many of you have heard of Abigail? Just raise your hand if you've heard of her. It's no, no shame if you haven't. Yeah, she, you know, she's kind of a minor character. You don't hear much about her. She appears in one chapter of the Bible. By the way, this painting on the left, I wanted to point your attention to it. There's a talented artist that uh, I came across accidentally doing research into Abigail. Uh, this is a, a painting done of, of Abigail by an artist named Sarah Beth Baca. Uh, and you can see her website right there, sarahbethart.com. She has a whole series of paintings called Women of the Bible. They're all kind of this style, and they all have these uh, little symbolic uh, things that are in the painting of the women of the Bible. Just a great place. I encourage you, go to the website and check it out. And I'm just uh, thrilled because she, uh, I contacted her and she graciously allowed us to use her artwork in our series as a kind of our little title slide. So thank you so much, Sarah Beth Baca. So everybody go to sarahbethart.com and, and buy up all her artwork. It's really good. All right. Before we dive into our story today, which is found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25, you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be kind of getting there, getting ready. I want to give you a little bit of background. So we kind of know the context of the story that we're about to see. I'll tell you a little bit about the, the characters that are fixing to be introduced here. The first character I want to tell you about is one that everybody uh, has probably heard of. And it's a guy by the name of David. Okay, we've heard of David. But David has a cameo in this story. He's not the main character. He's not the main hero. Uh, and so he's going to play a supporting role. And now, this is during a really chaotic time in David's life. Uh, this is about a, this is a few years after he's killed Goliath the giant, become a national hero as a teenager, killing Goliath. And he has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the next king of Israel. However, he is not king yet. And in fact, he is on the run from the current king, whose name is Saul, who's trying to assassinate him. So that's in a tough spot, right? You've been anointed to be the next king, and the current king is trying to kill you. Uh, because Saul is, he's really jealous and insecure of David's popularity. David's kind of become this, like I said, a national hero. The fact that God has decreed that Saul's basically a one-and-done leader, not Saul's children are going to be the, you know, the lineage for, for king. David is going to be the next king. So that kind of makes Saul not happy. Um, and so David's in this strange spot of being this fugitive, hunted by the king and the king's army, while he's a huge celebrity to half the country. Uh, there's this growing movement of people who are eager for him to become king, just, just become king now. And in fact, he's, he's amassed this sort of ragtag band of 
ruffians and scallywags. That's the uh, pirate translation of the Hebrew there. Um, ruffians and scallywags. These, these, this band of 600 loyal merry men who follow him around. Um, and meanwhile, David is not only hiding out, but he's also canvassing the country, kind of drumming up support, um, promising a brighter future. Sounds like an election year, right? This is kind of what's happening. And uh, so we can kind of relate to that. Israel uh, is in turmoil, basically, because it's it split in, in two with people vehemently divided over which king they want, something we totally wouldn't understand in such a peaceful, loving nation like we have. But people are really divided, and they, they get upset about it. Uh, but while Saul is trying to hunt David down, here's the thing about David. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. And David has vowed not to harm Saul, He's not going to hurry this thing along in any way. He, he said, I'm not going to hurt, I'm not going to assassinate Saul because he's king and he's the Lord's anointed. In fact, there's an incident right before this story that we're going to look at in chapter 24, the immediately before it takes place where David has a chance to kill Saul while Saul's in a cave. He's going to the bathroom in the cave and his men are, David's men are like, this is your chance do it. You're going to be king. And David's like, no, he refuses to do it. And it really shows his character in that moment. This is David at, at, its, at his best self. Um, he's trusting in the might of God over his own might, overtaking charge of things. He, he's showing restraint and wisdom over, you know, hot-headed pride. So as chapter 25 begins, the very beginning, the first thing we learn is that Samuel the prophet, the spiritual leader of Israel and the one who has anointed him to be the next king, has died. Samuel died. And uh, as I'm reading through this, I can't help but think that this might kind of give us a clue as to why David displays some insecurity that he's about to, we're about to see in this story. And he kind of acts out of that. His spiritual leader has died. And so he might kind of emotionally, mentally be thrown a little bit here. Uh, next, we're introduced to a couple, a married a man and a, a husband and wife named Nabal and Abigail. Nabal and Abigail. We find out that Nabal is a very wealthy man. He would have been kind of like a tribal chieftain, you know, of, of southern Judea back then. It says he has thousands of goats and sheep. And back then, having thought, that means you kind of are running a company because that means he has to have a huge force of servants, employees, you know, whatever we would call them, um, working for him, keeping all these things together, food for everybody, growing food for the people as well as all these sheep and goats and stuff like that. So he is kind of a super successful businessman at the time. But it says in the Hebrew, it describes him as kashé, which means stubborn or difficult. It also uses a word, wurah, which is basically the word for evil. So this is, this is kind of a bad dude. He's, you know, a business success, but he is stubborn, he's coarse, he's, he, you know, this is like a, a ranch owner who kind of takes pride in cutting corners and cheating the little guy. Turns out his name, even Nabal, the word in, is similar to the Hebrew word for fool or foolhardy. And so this is kind of, you, and I don't know if his parents named him that, which would be really unfortunate uh, for them to do that. Or this might be kind of like a nickname he's taken, you know, over the years. So this is the kind of guy who kind of takes pride in that. He's like, yeah, I'm the fool, right? You know, geez, that's who I am. Get out of my way. You know, so this is that kind of guy. Um, it, it, it's a reminder to us, too, that people can be uh, book smart and not emotionally intelligent. You can even be a, a business savvy and not emotionally smart or intelligent. Meanwhile, 
the, the main character we're going to be getting to, Abigail, is said to be intelligent and beautiful. Intelligent and beautiful. She is the only person in all of Scripture, the entire Bible front to back, who is described with these two words together, intelligent and beautiful. This beauty and brains, all in the same person. This is like if my wife Melissa lived 3,000 years ago, right? <laughs> she got it all, beauty and brains. So, uh, but I love this character, Abigail, because she, she's amazing. She's one of four women in the Bible who were praised for her beauty, but this isn't like some kind of vain Instagram model. Uh, this, is like, this is a person who shows the kind of wisdom and insight that just makes other people drawn to them, that makes people just trust them, right? She's smart, she's thoughtful, and she's clever. It also raises kind of the question, how did she end up with a goober like Nabal? Um, honestly, probably knowing the day, she probably was married off to him by her family and didn't have much say in it. But it is a warning, I think, to all of us uh, who are thinking maybe of going into marriage thinking we're going to change our spouse. That almost never happens. I could just tell you as people who've done a lot of marriage counseling, uh, no, that doesn't usually happen. Um, but it is, however she ended up in this, this marriage, it suggested that she has faced this, the, this challenge of this uh, many, for many years as we get to this moment. Okay. Now, David and his merry men... Uh, have been living out in the land uh, at this time. They, they moved into the area where Nabal is. And David and his men, it turns out, have been a huge benefit to Nabal. Because while they're hiding out and living in that region, they have acted as a protective presence in the land. For, for all of Nabal's, these are thousands. Remember, you take thousands of flocks all over there and all of his shepherds and workers who are out there. So David and his men have protected them this was a region where, you know, there would have been, it would have been very open to Amalekite raids and Philistine raids. You know, we talked about the raids like in the story of Gideon last week. These kind of raids would be happening all over the place. One of Nabal's servants even uh, suggested, oh, here we go, here, uh, suggested later that David and his men were like a wall of protection around us while we worked, right? And they, and they, they praised him and said, they never even stole our stuff, you know, like some of these, pro there's probably other like protection rackets who would, you know, come around and say like, hey, you know, it'd be a shame if something happened to your sheep, you know, give us some money. But David and his men didn't do that. They didn't ask for anything in return. They were just there protecting and uh, showing integrity. And so um, it says one day David hears that Nabal is preparing to have a huge party in his village or camp to celebrate the harvest. And so what David does is send a delegation of 10 men to uh, go talk to Nabal and ask him if he would share some food with us. Now, David has 600 men, uh, and as common in the time, what would be only understood is that some of these men would have wives and families too. So there's more people than this even. So David goes and says, can you share some food with us? Nabal's a wealthy guy. He's not asking for much. Uh, but, but it, and in fact, it would have been totally in line with what the Torah teaches about how we treat uh, the poor or the homeless or those who come come to us if you were a farmer or a landowner or a business owner at the time, to always be generous to those in need. And so David is, is asking something very reasonable here. Um, and, uh, so he re and he reminds Nabal here too, you know, and plus, you know, we, we've done you a great service by being out here and we haven't asked for anything in return. So how does Nabal respond? Well, first of all, in verse 9, it tells us that Nabal makes David's men wait a while. You ever seen this treatment? 
You're just going to make them wait a while, right? Just to kind of say, don't forget who's the, who's the big cheese around here. I'm in charge. I'm not going to react too quickly. This is kind of a power move. So already there's this sort of testosterone-laced rooster strutting happening. Uh, and then Nabal finally does answer back in verse 10. He says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Oh, he knows David. He doesn't know who David is, but he knows he's the son of Jesse. That's, that's funny to me right off the bat. Who's David? Everybody knows who David is, right? The whole country knows who David is. He knows perfectly well who David is. He's the folk hero who slew Goliath, right? I mean, they're singing songs about him in pubs all around Israel if they had pubs. You know, that's what they're doing. David! And so, this is, I mean, he knows who David is. He's insulting David and just making sure everybody knows that he's not just going to like get all like impressed because David came to his house. And then he says, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. The word he uses there can be used for slaves also. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men who come from God knows where, right? Who, now this now, to add to the insult of who's David, he's suggesting maybe David, this, he might just be some runaway slave, and his men are just a bunch of thugs. They're out begging. I mean, why should I share my hard-earned riches with these guys, right? Why don't they just go get a job or something? You know, why are they coming to me? Again, nothing we would ever hear today from Christians who are full of love and compassion. Amen? That's irony. Everybody laugh. Here we go. And so the men come back to David in verse 12 and 13. Uh, This scene reminds you, I don't know if you've seen The Godfather, this great scene in The Godfather where his conciliary conciliary goes and and asks a favor of this big movie mogul, and the movie mogul turns him down and says, I'm not going to do you any favor, and he just, and and The Godfather's man uh, just very calmly says, thank you for the wonderful meal, Uh, it was lovely, if you could take me to the airport, Uh, Mr. Corleone is a man who insists on hearing bad news immediately. And so here is kind of this godfather moment. I, the, the men sort of break away, and they, they go back to David, and they say, well, David, here's what Nabal told us. And what is David's wise and thoughtful response? He says, each of you, men, strap on your sword. Whoa, 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 Right? Nabal, the the testosterone control freak over here, throws an insult at David, and David bites the bait, right? Nabal gets under his skin. He loses it. That's it. Strap on the swords, boys, right? There's going to be bloodshed, right? I'm not going to be spoken to that way. And insecurity takes the reins here. The man God has already called him to be is just forgotten in this blind rage of wounded pride. Well, the servants of Nabal hear that he completely dissed David, and so they go running to Abigail. Not to Nabal. They don't try to go talk Nabal out of it, right? Because they know that's a lost cause. They go to Abigail, and they tell her the whole story. And they're telling Abigail, look, this is a disaster. There's going to be bloodshed. You need to do something right now because, you know, Nabal is this wicked man and no one can talk to him. I mean, Nabal's own servants, Abigail's husband, and these servants know they can tell Abigail the truth. This is a wicked man. And the actual phrase that they use here, wicked, is this Hebrew word. It's a phrase, ben Belial. Ben Belial. 
Ben means son of. You can imagine what comes next. Belial means a pile of dung. Uh, so we have a similar idea here in English that, that uh, I won't repeat, but the, you know, this is not a dainty story here. The translators have kind of toned it down for our, our precious Western ears. But the servants come right out to Abigail and say, Nabal is a worthless pile of crud. Abigail, you got to do something quick. And I love the very next words here so much. Abigail acted quickly. She swoops into action immediately. Something tells me this is not the first time Abigail has had to clean up a mess of Nabal, right? Her immediate response is not to like fret, oh, what should I do? Should I go behind my husband's back? Because I mean, he's the man, right? No, no, no. She is on her game. She is getting things done. She's focused. It's time for action. First thing she does is she gathers up a huge, this would come to hundreds of pounds of food. Now, this is smart, right? You want to calm down a room full of angry men, bring some food, right? Right off the bat. She knows what she's doing. And that was, remember, that was the original request. So she's meeting that original request just to feed David's men. She and her servants load up the, the horses and donkeys with hundreds of pounds of food to intercept David. She figures he must probably, he's probably already on his way. And so she's going to intercept him on the road. And when she herself finally rides up to meet David on the road to her house, it, it said that David had just declared to his men, the narrator tells us that David had just said, Nabal has paid me back evil for our good. May God deal with me be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of all who belong to him alive. Whoa, whoa. Now, notice, this has, uh, this has the structure of a binding religious oath. He's not just mouthing off here. He's now making an oath before God to kill not only Nabal, but every male in the camp, including his servants. May God punish me. He's swearing to God here. If I don't kill every male servant in the family member by morning, holy overkill, Batman, right? This is extreme. This is insecurity mixed with machismo, with temper. This has lost all perspective at this point. And to slaughter Nabal's men, it's not just a matter of honor here. It goes even beyond the limits of what Old Testament justice would say. David's not a king yet. He has no right to lead an army of people in an attack against another Israelite like this. And notice, too, it's cloaked in religious language. He adds God to this. He brings God into this. He makes, he makes this an issue of righteousness. I'm here to judge. I'm here to punish on God's behalf. I mean, how sickening is that? And yet it reminds me that religion is often used even in our day, as a cloak for anger, for insecurity, immaturity. Our personal bigotry and prejudice becomes justified when we've got God at our back. We, we have firmly planted Him at our side, and all of a sudden it's justified. Religion like breathes oxygen into our, our vendettas and our biases. It allows us to rail against the world while holding ourselves up sometimes as, as this tiny remnant whose duty it is to strike back 
in the name of God. It may sound like I'm exaggerating, but unfortunately, I've, I've been in church world a long time. I spent five decades in, in, in church world, and the abuse and abuse of others in the name of God is all too real. It happens, and it's sad, but it's true, and it's sad. And what's interesting, too, is it's, there's something attractive about it, too. When, a, when someone, a leader, a religious leader, somebody like stands up and is this way, that is the quickest way to gain a following, it seems like, because it's attractive. It, it, that, that anger and all that bias and that insecurity kind of looks like confidence and holy boldness. Yeah. It's really just a fear of the loss of power masquerading as righteousness. Jesus is the corrective that we need for this, by the way. This is, Jesus is the one we need to lean into. So, David says, I'm going to kill every male. By the word, the word male here is not the typical Hebrew word for man. He doesn't say, I'm going to kill all the ha-adams or something like that. He uses a Hebrew insult, right? Once again, we get another juicy Hebrew vulgarity here. Uh, I won't put it on the screen because there's little ones in the room, and uh, my mom might be watching online. So, um, but if you have an original King James Bible, King James Bible, not the new King James, but an original King James Bible, check it out. Verse 22, it's hilarious. It'll make all of your 11-year-old sons giggle for hours. Um, it's good. It's a slang term David uses here. It's a vulgarity, it, but it kind of describes this crude, visceral emotion that David is, is caught up in here. He's lost his temper. He's cussing. He's doing it all in the name of God, which makes him extra dangerous. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Two things to notice here. Number one, Abigail enjoys at this time a cultural status that is higher than David's. She is the, the wealthy wife of a powerful landowner. She would be respected throughout her village. She's apparently respected in her own household as kind of the person of real brains and, and wisdom and power in the family. And so she's bowing low here. This is like the first lady bowing down to this scruffy, young, poor, homeless uh, fugitive not because she has to or she's supposed to, but because she is a smart cookie, okay? Second thing to note, it, what she's about to communicate here, there's no mistaking it, is what we call a rebuke, a rebuke. Now, a rebuke is when you have to quickly insert yourself into another person, uh, their, their life, the circumstances, and help them stop doing something or help them turn from a direction that they're headed, uh, we're called in the New Testament church to lovingly rebuke uh, dangerous, sinful behavior among our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you see clearly something that they just can't, because they're in the fog, right? And it calls for, so a rebuke calls for decisive corrective action, and it's what she's doing here. But how does she do it? See, to rebuke someone doesn't mean that you have to be the one with the loudest voice. It doesn't mean that you've got to be the one with the greater anger, right, of condemnation, righteous indignation of the direction you are headed. That's not a rebuke. Actually, no, a rebuke can be a gentle, gracious act offered in humility, an act of love offered in humility. 
a proper rebuke. And this is exactly what she models for us. In fact, this is the way that Jesus establishes as the kingdom way for his followers today. So she bows before David. David, this person who has unjustly threatened to kill all the men in her family, she bows before him. And the first words out of her mouth are, please forgive me. Please pardon me. It's the Hebrew phrase that says, I take the blame. Imagine that. Now, is she to blame for this? That doesn't even matter. She says, I take the blame here. And here's why this is so brilliant. What she is doing is modeling for David the self-sacrificial and, frankly, Christ-like humility that she is about to call David to to demonstrate. It's, It's just brilliant what she does. Here's what we often get wrong. People who angrily rebuke, what they are doing is just showing the person they're rebuking what they should be doing. They're not doing, they're not showing the person they're rebuking what they should be doing instead, right? They're just modeling angry judgment, right? When you angrily rebuke, you're just modeling angry rebuke. And and so what what good rebuke does is it demonstrates for the person what you're going to call them to demonstrate. It models repentance, it demonstrates the gentleness and the humility it's going to take to repent. And so you'll notice throughout this passage we're about to read how she continually refers to him as Lord, and she refers to herself as servant. In verse 25, she says, please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. And folly goes with him. Notice Abigail's not holding back. She's not making excuses for him, right? She's telling David what everybody already knows. This guy is a hot-headed idiot, right? And it's not my job to enable his behavior or just, you know, quietly allow him to be a total jagweed at this point. I am going to try, though, to protect him from destroying himself as he's about to do. What I love here is this woman is immediately, she is she is the epitome of the role that God spoke over the wife way back in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The phrase that God uses back there was the Ezer Konegdo. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you, this Ezer Konegdo. And that word, does it, we've talked about this before, you guys know all this, it doesn't mean the subservient helper, like I'm, I'm your, your servant, like, you know, the caddy to your golfer or something like that. This word means ally. Taken together, Ezer connected, it's an ally to her husband. Everywhere else in the Old Testament that we see this word Ezer used, it refers to God and his role to Israel as their rescuer, as their savior, their defender, not as Israel's servant, as their defender. And Abigail knows right now that her responsibility right now is not to cower in the husband's shadow, right, or just kind of shrug at whatever he says and does, but to challenge him here. And under ideal circumstances, to co-rule with him, right, as, as the Lord under the lordship of God. But here, Abigail is taking the reins in the situation to say, if he will not listen, then the best I can do is to make life as healthy and livable as possible for everyone, for anyone who will listen to me. Amen? Amen. See, sometimes I think to, to be quiet is a loving thing to do. And sometimes to be quiet is just called enabling, 
Amen? That's for somebody. But look at what she says next in verse 26. She says, and now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with his own hands. Notice she doesn't say, please don't, please don't kill my husband. He's really a good guy if you get to know him, right? She doesn't make that up. She says, I'm here on behalf of God to prevent you from doing this because if you'll just slow down a second, if you'll just let some of this testosterone dissipate for a second, you'll realize you don't want to do this. It's not right. And God has sent me here to get you back on track. As surely as the Lord lives, she says, I'm here to prevent you from shedding innocent blood. You don't want your kingship someday soon. You're going to go into that kingship, and you don't want it to go into it with the blood of a massacre on your hands. She's speaking prophetically, right? You don't want this on your record. God has sent me to rescue you from that possibility. The, The Jewish rabbis regard Abigail as one of the seven prophetesses of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? They regard her as one of the seven prophetesses of Israel. Starting in verse 28, we really see this. Oh, here it is, sir. She says, uh, let's see here. Oh, she begins, to, she begins to prophesy of his future. She says, you're going to do great things. You're going to fight many battles. You're not going to have a heart that seeks to do wrong. She believes the best in David, and she's speaking to his potential here. See, this is the way to do a rebuke. This is the form her rebuke takes. And in 29, she says, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the, Lord, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living, or some translations say the bundle of life by the Lord your God. Bound securely in the bundle of the living. This is such a beautiful Hebrew phrase right here. I want to stop on it because to, this, to be bound securely in the bundle of life, these words are so moving that within uh, Judaism, they, they use it to describe what happens to the souls of the righteous after death. And it's, it's a phrase that is spoken even at Jewish funerals to this very day, that they are bound securely in the bundle of life. That word, that place of security, the word means like a pocket, like a, little, like a little purse, a little pocket of God where God draws you in. Life itself is wrapped up, and she says, you're going to be kept there, David. That's where God wants you, in his own pocket. And then she says, look, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Oh, come on, how brilliant is that? You know what she's referring to, right? David's like, oh yeah, you heard about that one, right? The sling. She makes a reference to the slingshot. Abigail says, this is what God has in store for you, David. You're going to be a great king. You don't need to do this. You don't want this on your conscience. So how does David respond? David praises God. Wow. He has an immediate change. I mean, she has immediately brought the temperature way down. He says, while you have saved me from myself, praise God, he has sent you. In verse 35, he says, he says, and I hear your words. The word here is hearken, which means I don't, I don't just hear, I obey. I'm going to obey your voice. I submit myself to your rebuke. Message received. Abigail then goes back home, having saved many lives, 
When she gets back home, it says that her husband is drunk, partying like a king, uh, which kind of gives you, the narrator gives a little insight into his thinking of himself. And it says, so she waits until morning when he's sober to tell him everything that happened. Smart lady. Now notice, this is a huge sacrifice for Abigail. She is a wise woman in a toxic relationship. There's no way to sugarcoat it. And after years of enduring this kind of marriage, knowing David is coming to kill her husband, she could very easily have just said, oh, what a shame. (laughs) Maybe it's time to go have a picnic or something. I'll be back in the morning. Right? But she makes the loving choice, the choice of integrity and faithfulness. At this point, she has no plans of leaving her husband. She's trying to save his life. She doesn't know, by the way, the end of the story, that her husband actually dies a, few, a, a short while later. She hasn't read the, the romantic end where David hears about that and immediately comes and proposes to her. And they get married and ride off into the sunset together, and she becomes the wife of the king of Israel. A wife to David that he continues to treasure for her wisdom and her insight for the rest of their lives. In this moment, she chooses, in the moment, to make the sacrificial choice to remain faithful within her marriage, but not as a doormat to the husband, but as his equal, who is willing to challenge him when he needs it, and even to take charge of the situation to save his life. It's a cool story. I love this story. But, but why does it really matter to us? Well, about a thousand years later, the writer Luke says this about Jesus. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures that would be referring to the Old Testament concerning himself. So Jesus took his disciples back through all of these Old Testament stories, just like we're doing today, just like we're doing in this series. And he says, it's really all about me. When you read these stories, these are about me. So when we we see these hints of the gospel, when we see hints of the character of Christ in these stories, we're just, we're not, it's not wishful thinking. We are doing what Jesus told us to do with our very own Bibles, right? And so when we look at Abigail, it's no coincidence. When we see the character of Christ in this story, I see the, the Jesus that Philippians chapter 2 said was the one who held all the power, but he gave it up, and he became a servant to us. He became the foot washer for us. In this story, Abigail has many servants who do the, the foot washing, and it says that she offers in this story to wash the feet of David and all his men. That's a lot of feet. It's like 1,200 feet. And Abigail, at one point, we just read it. She says, don't kill, please don't kill Nabal. He's just a fool. He don't know what he's doing. Now, that sounds, that might sound kind of insulting, but it's not, is that not exactly what Jesus says when he's dying on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Abigail gives David in this story a chance to see others as misguided 
worthy of our mercy. And, and to, so to flip our perspective, rather than seeing them as evil enemies that we need to exact our vengeance upon. This is not, that's not how we're to review the world. Amen? We're not to view the world as the evil other that we are called to defeat or to defend our honor against. We're never called to defend our honor against them. What we are called to look upon the world is as prisoners worthy of rescue. Jesus calls them the lost people needing to be saved, people needing to be found. Our enemies require our love, our mercy, never our vengeance, never our vengeance. So, two questions I want to leave us with today to challenge us. Number one, who are the Abigails in your life? Who are you willing to allow to speak rebuke to you. That doesn't come easy. That's not natural, right? We don't like to be rebuked. We don't like to be corrected. I don't. And I've taken it badly and I've taken it well. But it's never fun. It's never fun. But who do we allow to speak into our lives so that we can say, thank you for stopping me in my tracks, for believing me enough to say that I am better than this. Thank you for thinking that I am better than this. Who's your Abigail? And then the follow-up question, of course, who needs you to be an Abigail for them? Who's the person you're called to be an Abigail for? Not, not the know-it-all, self-righteous, judgy type, but that voice of reason who can bring down the temperature in the room who's willing to speak truth to power, whether they're a spouse or a friend or the boss at work or a politician running for office, who are you willing to say, this is not worthy of you? You are better than this. And I don't want to stand by and just let this injustice happen without saying something. Guys, today we, we live in an epidemic an epidemic of people in positions of power, political world, business world, cultural world, media world, with this, this self-serving, self-righteous, juvenile, vindictive, greedy, inhuman, destructive behavior, right? They hit me, I'm going to hit them back twice as hard. That's the age we are living in. And who will be the Abigails to stand and say, stop it? You're meant for greater things than this. You're meant for something greater than this. And maybe some of us need to say, God, give me the strength and the courage to actually speak out to make a change, to work for change, to become an Abigail in the world around me, to stand against injustice, and to actively seek to soften hearts, because that's the, that's the goal rather than just stand by and watch the world burn, or worse yet, help throw matches on it. Maybe you're somebody here today, or listening, or watching, and if you were honest, you would say, you know, we all want, we all want to be the hero of the story. The natural thing for all of us to do, and myself included, is to go, yeah, I am kind of like Abigail. That's right. 
But maybe if you're here today and you're, you're being really honest, you might say, you know what, I'm more often David or Nabal than the Abigail. And, and so maybe you sense the Holy Spirit whispering because his, convic- his conviction is always motivated by love. We can trust his conviction, right? Hey, you may not trust me enough to throw me, whatever that means. But you can trust the Holy Spirit because his conviction is always motivated by love. And if that's you, then you just simply need to repent and say, I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you for believing that I am better than this. Can we pray? Hallelujah. Father God, Lord, this is an inspiring story and it's a challenging story. And thank you, Lord, for making your message, your word, take on flesh and blood in the form of Jesus. Lord, I thank you. You've given us such a beautiful, tangible example of what it means to have the heart of God lived out in human form. I pray, Lord, that 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 heart would increasingly become our heart. Help, Help us to have that heart of Jesus. Help us to be open to the Spirit working inside us, Father. Lord, I thank you. Like Colossians 2 says, that how we see the reality of Jesus, it casts a shadow back through Scripture. And so we see the shape of Jesus in the characters and the stories and the teachings of the Torah. And I thank you, Lord God, for this story of Abigail. I pray, Lord, that you would use this story, this person, to challenge our hearts, to receive the forgiveness and the correction that we need to receive so we can become those ministers of of grace and reconciliation in the world that you've called us to be in the lives of others. Give us that courage. Give us that humility to speak truth in love. Truth in love. We invite your Holy Spirit to do its work in us now, Lord God, as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.